in the reading corner today, a much anticipated guest, as I know many of our listeners have been keen to hear from Kelly Yang, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Front Desk and the books in that series, which include Room to Dream, Three Keys, and most recently, Key Player. She's also the author of YA Books, Parachutes and Private Label, and a non-fiction title. It's called Yes, We Will, Asian Americans Who Shaped the US. Kelly's also a journalist and is the recipient of the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. That's quite a lot to have crammed in since your debut book was published in 2018. Yes, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I wanted to start by going back to your personal experience, because I think everything that I've read by you, in one way or another, touches on things from your own life. And I want to talk about how those experiences have found their way into your fiction, but also what you pull back on, because it is fiction at the end of the day, you're not writing an autobiography. Yeah. So I definitely grew up in America, managing three different motels um, with my parents. And so that's how I started as a kid manning the front desk. And I was only about eight years old when my parents got this job. Uh, my, My mom was an engineer in China. My dad was a doctor. So they were totally inexperienced for managing a motel, but we went for the opportunity anyway because we thought it would be a great experience and because it came with free room and board. And that was very exciting, right? As an immigrant family, that was extremely exciting because rent was consuming most of our paycheck. So when we got to the motel, we quickly realized, oh my goodness, there are 30 rooms and they need to be clean every single day. And there was nobody else working at the motel. So my parents threw themselves into cleaning, which pretty much took up their entire day. I hardly ever saw them. And that meant there was nobody to take care of the front desk. So as a young kid, I decided, hey, why not me? I'm going to try to do this role. And it would also give me an opportunity to practice English and deal with customers and I actually got really, really good with uh, in, in terms of dealing with customers. And I, I still pride myself to this day on my customer service skills. Um, so all that made its way into my books. In terms of where to separate the fiction and the nonfiction, I usually try to start off with a very real core emotion, whether it's a feeling of loneliness or it's a feeling of being a new person, a fish out of water like a a person in a completely new environment, that's something that so many people can relate to. You don't even have to be an immigrant to relate to it. You know, you could be moving to a new city, starting at a new school. And so I usually start off with a very real core emotion. And I sort of sift through all of my memories that have to do with that emotion. And where it makes sense to include some of those memories, I will include it in the book. And where my imagination kind of takes off, that's when we get into those really fun, juicy, fictional details that are really fun and, and, and hilarious. But they always have to ring true to that emotion. Really interesting. I heard um, Neil McGregor, who is the chair of this year's Booker Prize, talking about fiction 
and how it was easier, he felt, for the current shortlisted authors to reach their truth through writing fiction than if they had been writing non-fiction. And a lot of the, this year's shortlist are writing about historical things that have happened in their countries. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You can get really close to what happened because you're not so overwhelmed by the actual memory. You know, you're not trying, you're not obsessed with, well, did this happen? Was he standing there? Was the lighting like this? You you can kind of let go of those little tiny details that don't really have to do with the core emotion and just really focus on that. And sometimes an experience that happened in real life, it confers that deep emotion. Um, but if you change a little bit of some of those details, it can actually be even more powerful and it can drive home that emotion. Obviously, I can see lots of connections in key player with things that happen to you. You've even got your, you know, your articles in in the book as well. But what was the core emotion that drove you with this book? So in key player, Mia is trying to get this interview. First of all, she's she's terrible at PE, at, at physical education in school. And that's very real. I am hopeless um, in terms of being an athlete. I just I drop every ball. I can't catch anything. I fall for no reason. And this has been a source of ongoing anxiety my entire childhood. I remember every time we had to go to PE, just going, oh, my God, this is going to be so embarrassing. I'm going to be the slowest. No one's going to pick me for their team. And so that was one of the core emotions is that feeling of, I just can't be good at this thing. But everybody is telling me I have to be. And it's so valued in society to be good at PE, to be good at sports. And what if I'm just not, you know, does that mean that I don't have as bright of a future? There's so many things we associate with sports too, like being a team player, being a leader. Can I be any of those things if I'm not good at sports? So it, it, it really, it almost reflects on you if you're not good at sports. So that was something I really started with was just that vulnerability of being a kid who is just truly uncoordinated and cannot catch a ball to save her life. From there, going into a strength, which is, well, I am good at writing. You know, is there a way there that I can enjoy sports? And Mia has this opportunity to interview um, the Chinese women's soccer team, who happens to be playing the Women's World Cup Mm -hmm. in LA that year, which really happened in real life. Uh, There was this massive soccer match, and I was determined to land the interview even though it was extremely difficult to find these people, they were, you know, hunkered down in some in some hotel somewhere in Pasadena. And I pretty much spent the entire summer going from hotel to hotel to hotel, being completely determined, just like an athlete, to get my goal, you know, mm-hmm. and I love that parallel. And I love giving kids that sense of empowerment. You don't have to have sports necessarily as your superpower, but we all have a superpower. It's okay that it's a little different from everybody else's. You've got to find your superpower. Possibly in the US, that putting of sport on a pedestal is even greater, I think, than it is here. More exaggerated, if you like, because one of the things that really strikes us as shocking is the link between getting a good grade in sport and being allowed to go to journalist camp. Yeah, it's this, it's an emphasis on being well-rounded. 
you know, what does that mean? It means um, being good at everything. But if you think about sports, a lot of times it really depends on having those resources early on, having the access to coaches, having the money to spend on little league and football. And my parents didn't have, you know, Mm -hmm. and my parents always told me, do not get too close to the ball because you might get injured and we don't have health insurance. (laughs) You know, that was something that we talked about in the first book. But sometimes, and what's really interesting about these books is you don't really see something, you know, it doesn't really hit you maybe until the third or fourth book. Um, And because that's really the reality of a childhood, right, is there might be a detail in your childhood and you don't even realize how significant it is until you're a little bit older and you're going, oh, okay, that's why I'm not good at sports. So many things to unpack just in what you've said there. Let's take the thing of health insurance first, because here, as you know, we have something that's called the National Health Service, which is but is certainly under strain. And we're all concerned about what the future of that is going to be. So reading your novels and this real concern about, am I going to get hurt playing this, this game? And then reading also an article that you had written in Elle magazine about the pandemic and fears over paying for health insurance during that time. Yeah. I mean, here in America, so many of our health, our, uh, so many of us have health insurance that's directly tied to our employment. During the pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs. And, you know, even it is something that all of us worry about, even if you have a job, you're just always, always worried about it. Um, it's something that is front of mind because the minute something happens with that job, there goes your health insurance. And yeah, you can buy health insurance as an individual, but it's expensive. And if you do get injured, you're going to have to pay humongous deductibles. And there's just, it's never really free. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that is stressful. Um, and I remember growing up with that in my mind because my mom would talk about it. And that impacted my choices that I could make as a kid. Mia starts by saying, you can achieve anything if you just imagine it. You know, if you picture it, you can achieve anything. To some extent, we know that isn't true. And yet you seem to have proved that it is true. So I I imagine that this is, you know, part of your philosophy that you have to imagine it and go for it. Yeah, that's actually probably the biggest theme in all these books, you know, and it's something that's a theory and it's tested, right? In the very first book, you have Lupe saying to Mia, hey, you know, you can't win if you don't play. In other words, you've got to go for it. At the same time, she says to Mia, America's not like in the movies. You know, there are two roller coasters, one for the rich and one for the poor. And these are two kind of diametrically opposed theories, right? One saying there's not much we can do about these two roller coasters we're just stuck on. And the other going, yeah, you can do anything. You should just play. Mm. And Mia, of course, has to decide for herself which one she's going to believe in. You know, which one symbolizes her American dream and which one she is going to act on. And she she definitely chooses, I think, to to try to play and try to go for it in every book. But you do see you do see a lot of the hiccups. You do see the the, the speed bumps. It's not easy. Mm. And it's something that I've had. You know, there's so many feel, moments of frustration, no matter what part of life you're in, no matter what 
economic station you're in, so many times where you kind of look around and go, oh, wow, you know, things aren't exactly 100% fair for everyone. And it, it hits you, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have to keep going and have to, you have to find that optimism and you have to find that hope. Optimism is certainly something that runs through the books. There's another factor, I think, which is to do with parents and how parents shape the person you become. In your author's note, for instance, you say that your mum drove you around all those hotels. (laughs) How important is it exploring that? I think it's so important, both in terms of the positive side and the negative side. Mm. It's very honest, honest portrayal, I think, of at least my immigrant parents. First, they didn't really believe in me writing. They thought it was a little bit of a joke, you know, because I didn't grow up with this language. I wasn't born with English. I immigrated when I was six years old. It took me ages to learn English. My mom thought, well, why wouldn't you just do math? Because you have more of a background there. I can help you. You know, I'm an engineer. And it was really her, her dream. She wanted to experience it through me. And I thought, well, this is a free country. You know, literally, this is what you guys moved here for so that I can be whatever I want. And it took her a really long time to kind of come around to that idea. And you'll see in the in the uh, latest books where she really comes around to this idea. And she, she really supports Mia, I think. And, and it's hilarious. And in real life, I think, it, you know, once my parents got behind it, they were, you know, Team Kelly all the way. <laughs> theme that runs through the books is about identity and belonging. And in this book, the consideration of what it means to be a real American. I mean, what is it that makes you all American? Is it having a kitchen with an island? Is it being good at sport? So Mia feels this tension and wants actually both teams to be able to win the FIFA World Cup. Tell us a little bit about this idea of the book exploring that there is room for you to be all parts of you, not just the one. I think that when I was growing up, I didn't really have books like this. And you really do feel a sense of, well, can I show other parts of me? You know, can I take this wonderful fried rice my mom made to school and not have people laugh at me? There are all these things about me that I wanted to show, but I was worried about it. I was really worried about it. And so I didn't show them. And I think that it's so beautiful now in 2022 that we can, that we can show all the different parts of us and have them celebrated. But that is only because we have books like this, where kids can see themselves and they can see, yeah, it's okay to bring fried rice to school or whatever, you know, it's okay to wear something that is super colorful and represents your culture. It's totally okay. You can be just as American or British and that's what's one of, the, one of the greatest things about our countries is that we can celebrate that. We do have a mix of people, and that's what makes us so unique. Otherwise, I'm worried about reversing back to the old times where a lot of kids grew up feeling deeply ashamed. You mentioned, or Mia mentions Amy Tan in the book, which is somebody that you read when you were maybe a bit older than her. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love Joyla Club. Um, I've never met her, but I'm a huge fan. And I think the way that she writes, especially about mother-daughter relationships, the complexity, that's something that I try to go for as well, even in middle grade. And I think it's so beautiful. Did you read uh, Maxine Hong Kingston? Yes, absolutely. I took a women's studies course at Berkeley, and those are all required reading. I was interested, it's Mr. Yao who says to Jason in in Key Player, when I was your age, I wanted to get far away from anything remotely Chinese, but you lean into it. And that makes me proud. I've been talking to quite a few people recently about the partition of India, which has had its anniversary this year. And some of the Indian diaspora that I've been talking to say that they are more interested in heritage and tradition than their parents were, that somehow their parents were just trying to get on with the business of living in their new place. But now it's possible to look back in order to look forward. I got a bit of a sense of that when I was reading your book. Absolutely. I think that you, your first instinct is just to survive. And that's what the first book is all about. You're just trying to survive. You don't even have the time or the energy. You can't afford to go back and unpack things, all of the pain or whatever, things that have happened, good and bad. And the second book, it's it's also just like now that we have food on the table and a, and a roof over our head, can we even stay here? Can we belong here? You know, are we allowed like, legally to stay here? And then I think the third book is when they really start to have some fun because they can go back to China and they can actually start understanding a little bit of their culture and history and reconnect with their roots. And then, of course, by the fourth book, you really have them being able to look in, you know, internally, internally at the history of themselves. And I think it's so rewarding to be able to see into Mr. Yao's childhood because he was such a perfect antagonist in the first book. And we all love to hate him, <laughs> but we didn't realize that he had his own pain and that he had his own story. Of course, there's so much positive here, but maybe if we could just touch very lightly on some of the deeply troubling aspect, which is, you know, the racist element. There is anti-Chinese feeling, for instance, in the run-up to the FIFA World Cup. And that also chimed with me with the article of yours that I read, where you talked about how it had been put forward as the Chinese virus. And that's, you know, so recent. Mm -hmm. And that is yet another excuse to display racist behavior. So you do confront that in the book as well. Yeah, I think it's something that we have to talk about because it happens. You know, it happened in history and it happens even now. It happens in recent history. And I think there's a tendency, if we don't talk about it, for kids to internalize it as maybe there's something wrong with me. My people are being blamed. Maybe I should hide the fact that I'm Chinese. Um, but I think that if we talk about it, you know, we really shine the light onto an issue and we can process and grow. And that's the thing, you know, no country is perfect. No people are perfect. But what makes us have hope is we have the capacity to reflect. 
Mm-hmm. We have the capacity to have those conversations, even if they're hard sometimes. Um, but you'd be amazed. You know, they don't have to be hard. That's why we have books. They really open that conversation right up. And kids really gravitate towards that. They want to understand what's going on in the world. You know, we can't really shield them from some of the anger and hostility that they see every day on TV. So we might as well be able to talk about it to have to help them prepare for the future. Well, many of our listeners are teachers and librarians. And of course, your books, by the very nature that they take place in schools, we have encounters with teachers, counsellors, librarians. I'm interested to know from your own childhood, what lessons you learnt from teachers and librarians, whether positive or negative, and whether you've been able to take forward from any of those experiences into your writing and indeed into your teaching. Yeah, I had amazing teachers and librarians growing up. It's really the only reason I made it. It's the only reason I'm here today. And I would say that the number one piece of advice that my teachers and librarians gave me was read for yourself and write for yourself. And I will tell you that I had a pretty hard relationship with writing all the way until fourth grade. I was getting some really bad scores because I always made a ton of grammar mistakes and a ton of writing mistakes, just a ton of spelling mistakes. And over time, I started to think, I can't do this. This is not something that is fun because I'm always going to get graded and it's always going to be a bad grade and I'm going to have to bring it home and my mom's going to get mad. And over time, writing became a real burden for me, something I dreaded. I didn't like it. And it wasn't until fourth grade and I had a teacher named Mrs. Smith and she had this wonderful idea. She put on classical music after lunch every day for about 45 minutes and she gave us each a brand new notebook. And she said, you guys can write whatever you want in these notebooks. I will never check it. This is not for me. As long as you write, you have to, you know, hand pen to paper, you have to keep moving your hand. But as long as you do that, I will be satisfied. And this is your time to write whatever you want for yourself. And those 45 minutes every day, I lived for those 45 minutes. It just really changed my relationship with writing. And the funniest thing was at the end of the year, she asked us, she said, who wants to read something that they wrote during those 45 minutes? And every hand went up in the class. People who you didn't think of as writers now identified as writers. And even now when I'm stuck, when, I, <laughs> when I'm having a hard writing day, I think back to that class. I'll take a notebook out, I'll put on some classical music, and I'll pretend I'm in Mrs. Smith's class again. We have to encourage kids to find the joy because that's what's going to sustain them. And same thing with reading. My librarian really encouraged me, read whatever you want, something for you. It can be a cartoon. It can be a graphic novel. It can be, you know, it can be an easy book. It can be a picture book. It doesn't matter as long as you find the joy. That's what I want. Finding the joy. Just one final thing. You've done quite a lot to give back, not only through your books, but your projects as well. You set up space on your website where young people could publish their stories about the pandemic. And you also have something called the Kelly Yang Project. Can you tell us in a few words about those initiatives? 
Yeah. So I was a teacher in Hong Kong for about 15 years. I started a writing project for kids to learn creative writing because there wasn't anything like that in Hong Kong at the time. There wasn't a way for kids to use writing as an outlet to ex- you know, to express themselves, which is so important, as well as public speaking and all of that wonderful stuff. You know, I think we learn a lot in the West, but we kind of take for granted And I thought it would be great to bring it there. And it's been going really strong. Every year, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids who participate. It's run by a wonderful group of teachers now. And then I also was very angry during the whole book banning crisis here in the U.S. We had a lot of attacks on freedom to read in the schools, in the libraries. And something that I started recently was a nonprofit here in the U.S. called Inspiration Scene, um, where I personally donate hundreds of banned books to Title I elementary schools all over the U.S. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the titles in here that have been banned. I'm talking about like Anne Frank. You know, are you kidding me? And yet we've had so many book challenges here in the US. It's been an absolute joy talking to you today. And you took us to that word joy. And it is our responsibility to help children find joy in their writing and their reading. Uh, Thank you so much for the books that you're continuing to write and for joining me in the reading corner today. Thank you so much.